chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, the text is, the entire text is there in the bulletin. As they're making their way out, I'm going to do something I don't normally do. Don't get nervous. That could mean anything, I know. Uh, I, I want to welcome someone by name. I would like to welcome uh, the Reverend Paul Settle to uh, worship this morning. I've actually never met Pastor Settle, but I, I know who he is. Um, he was the beloved pastor of our sister church, Second Presbyterian, which is also downtown. But also, um, thank you so much. But really, a, a father in the faith in our our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, or the PCA. If, if when I was in seminary and I took classes on recent church history, and we learned the history of how this denomination started, uh, Pastor Settle's name comes up, and so I, I, I'm and. I, as I said, I don't normally do this, but it actually in some ways is applying what I'm preaching on this morning. So uh, I want to say welcome. We're, we're very glad that you're here, and thank you for all you've done. 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 12. The kind of preaching that I strive to do here is what's called expository preaching. And that's just, that's just sort of a technical term for the fact that when I preach, and hopefully anyone who preaches when, when I'm not here, is to, to open God's Word, open the Scriptures, take a text, and you don't just preach from that, but we want to draw out what's there. In other words, we don't want to just decide what I want to talk about this morning, kind of find a verse that's loosely associated with that, read it, and then kind of springboard off that to talk about what I want to talk about but it's to take the text and really try to unpack it and say, what is this text saying on its own terms? We may like it, we may not like it. And I find that there's two ways that a passage can be challenging. One is where the text is just very difficult. It may be that um, the terminology is difficult or the concepts are very difficult. There are some extremely hard things to understand in Scripture. It's occupied people for millennia. Or maybe it's a genealogy and we just we don't understand it. So that's challenging. But the other way that a text can be very challenging can be that it's just too clear. It's it's too clear. It says what it says overtly and we don't like it. And I would say that the text this morning might fall under that category. Peter has been talking about the fact that God's people, they're not just a religion, but they're a people. And what I was speaking about when new members just joined is we want our local church to be an expression of that, that we're not just random individuals that like the same work. We are a local manifestation of a people and are to be committed to one another like that. God's people are a people, a priesthood, uh, a kingdom, all these things, one of a kind. And what he's been saying is that we are holy. That doesn't mean that we're better than everybody. It means that we are set apart. To be holy in Scripture is to be set apart unto God's purposes. 
And we might say, great, I like the sound of that. I'd like to be set apart unto God. But then he starts unpacking what that means. And we get to this morning's text, and he says what, one of the implications of being holy, being priest, being different, is that you have to do something. And what he's commanding us to do, it is an imperative, is jarring. I would say it's jarring to people in general. It is particularly jarring to Americans. And before we go any further, I want you to hear something. I love being American. I am so thankful to be American. There are blessings that we have forgotten about but still benefit from that are afforded to us by where we live. Hear that on the front end before we go any further. However, we come with our strengths and we come with our weaknesses. And one of our weaknesses makes this text just jarring. What does Peter want us to do and be as people who are holy and set apart and different? 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Amen. Let's pray together. We ask now, Father, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and soft hearts, fertile hearts to receive and bear fruit from what you say. We pray with the psalmist that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in the late 90s, it sounds strange to, to say that, like that's some foregone, bygone era, but in the late 90s, uh, a book that came out that got a lot of attention was a book by Tom Brokaw called The Greatest Generation, and it was about that generation that uh, fought World War II or supported those who were fighting World War II and then, um, you know, built this country, and it's our parents, it's our grandparents, great book. I got a copy, and one of the things that I learned in that book that I'd never heard before is that the spouses of men who had, uh, who had been prisoners of war in World War II found that there was an experience that they had in common, or at least there was an observation that they had in common. Wives of men who had served as POWs in World War II found that this common experience was that their husbands if a mealtime was a little bit late, got disproportionately upset. So if, the, if they normally had lunch at 12 and lunch wasn't ready till 12.20, the husband might get very upset. And tuck that away. Um, 
friend of mine, an older man, a friend of mine, made an observation one time. He told me this maybe a decade ago. And since I heard him say this and I've watched people I know, new people I've met, it really has, has held true. He said, if you meet someone who grew up in poverty, or at least grew up where things were really, really tight, if that person sort of gets a break, either through resources or education or just they just get a break, and they enter the workforce and they start gaining some ground, do not get between them and their work. Do, do not get between this person and his or her work ethic. They are all about the work. Tuck that away. Uh, personally, this probably will not surprise you for me to tell you that um, growing up, I was usually the smallest person in my class. And, and that was really accentuated by the fact that I was usually the youngest person in my class. So I was already small, but then I might be almost a year younger than some of my classmates. So they're hitting these growth spurts and, you know, I'm like up to their belt. And, uh, and I, I have realized sort of strangely later in life where this should have been obvious. I think Dana has helped me recognize this, that when I get in situations and I feel uh, bullied, and this is strange because I didn't really get bullied a lot growing up. Sense of humor is key when you're small. Uh, yeah. What do you want me to do to like me back? Okay, good, I'll do that. But, uh, but if I feel bullied, I get disproportionately angry. If I feel like someone is pushing me around, I, I don't just get irritated. I mean, I want to put on a Viking helmet and burn the town down. I'm so angry. Now, what is the common theme in all three of those? It's, it's sort of a disproportionately intense response. Why? It's because in, in each of those three instances, it, we could use a lot more examples, but someone has been up under something that they did not like. And they got out from under it, but when they bump into some experience or some situation and they feel like they're, they're being brought back up under it, disproportionate anger, disproportionate pushback, because they did not like being under that thing, that experience. It was over them. When something is over you and you're under it, you're subject to it. The, the, the imperative in this text, Peter says, and again, it's in the form of a command. He's an apostle. And I'm not saying this to be funny. I mean it. He's an apostle. He can do this. The imperative is to be subject to certain things, that they be over us and we be under them. And the kind of subjection he describes is particular, and that's what I want to look at this morning. I look at three things. First off, it's a subjection. We could use the word submission. The Greek word here is translated both ways in the English. But it's a subjection that's, number one, it's comprehensive, it's persuasive, and it's derivative. Okay? It's comprehensive, it's persuasive, and it's derivative. Peter is commanding us to enter into a subjection, a submission that's comprehensive. Now, let me start with verse 13. 
Verse 12 we ended with last week, so I've, I've, I wanted this to be a bridge into the portion that we're looking at uh, this morning. He says in verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. But you don't get a lot of detail just from that. Like, what kind of good deeds? What kind of good works? What do you mean? All right, he starts to fill in the blanks. Verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That's pretty wide. Subject yourself to every human institution. So we might ask, as we're trying to, you know, be expository, we're trying to unpack this, uh, how, how serious are you about this? How wide do you want to go? All right, look at the first example he cites. Verse 13 again, "...be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution." The first example is, "...to the emperor as supreme." To the emperor as supreme. And then in verse 17, the end of our text, he ends up saying, don't just be up under him. Don't just kind of begrudgingly obey the, the expectations of the emperor, but honor him. Now, that's different because that means don't just play by the rules, but, you know, with your friends, with your family, you're, you're throwing the emperor under the bus, but you honor him publicly and privately. Now, if we're, gonna, if we're going to understand this text, I think one question we've got to answer if we're going to do our homework is, which emperor? Who's the emperor at the time of the writing of this letter? Who would be the emperor over these areas like Pontus and Cappadocia and Galatia? You ready for this? It's Nero. Do you know anything about Nero? You almost have to use profanity to describe how bad he was. Let me give you just a couple of uh, snippets, and wow, there's more, but let's just, a little sampling. Uh, He kicked one of his wives to death when she was pregnant. He used to take Christians, have them coated in something flammable, set on poles and would light them and use them to light garden parties when he had guests over. And now, I I was not a classics major, but from from what I understand, the most accurate accounts of what we know about Nero is by a Roman historian named Tacitus. And Tacitus, when he gets to the end of his uh, recounting of, of Nero, he says, he was finally so vicious and cruel to Christians that the, the wider Roman population, which was not naturally inclined to, to sympathize for the Christians, became sympathetic because people could just in general see he just has it in for these people and he is vicious. The Romans were saying that. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is Peter a dum-dum? Or does he know who the emperor is at this time? And the answer is, of course he does. And Peter would be the first to say, the ultimate king, the supreme ruler in heaven and on earth is the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, in his application of what does it look like to be different? What does it look like to be a people who are distinct on the face of the earth? One of his first applications is... 
Submit yourselves. Subject yourselves. What do you mean by that? Well, how about to the emperor? In, in fact, honor him. Now, I'm telling you, that is jarring. And it just so happened, quote, unquote, I'm saying that as someone who believes that God directs all these things. It just so happened in my own Bible reading this week, I was reading about David. And it's in this period of time where David, King David, Old Testament, he's been anointed king. He's God's chosen man. He should be the person in charge of Israel and Judah. But you still had this wicked king named Saul. And he was the first king of Israel. And Saul goes from bad to worse. And David, who's been so loyal to him, who's been so faithful to him, who's been compassionate to him, Saul will try to kill him. And it becomes so dangerous that uh, David and some of his followers, they flee into the wilderness more than once. Now get this. Not just once, but twice, David had an opportunity to polish Saul off, just put in his lap. One time, and I don't want to be more earthy than the Bible, but I don't want to be less earthy. One time, David and his men are hiding out in a cave, and Saul comes in that one cave, of all the caves, he comes in that cave by himself to relieve himself. You know, and David's buddies are just going, cha-ching. You know, on a scale of one to ten of vulnerability, we have a ten. And David stops them. Why does he stop them? He says, he is the Lord's anointed. And then there's another time where David and some of his guys find Saul and his entire camp in a deep sleep. It says, God put them in a deep sleep. And David and this other guy named Abishai, they creep into the camp. They walk right up to Saul's bedroll. And this man, David's uh, soldier says, let me take his spear and pin him to the earth. And this is a very Old Testament text. He says, I won't have to hit him twice. David stops him and repeatedly says, he is the Lord's anointed. But David, he's wicked. But David, he's usurped his right to be... He, he's bad and you're good and he doesn't deserve to be king and you've already been anointed, you ought to polish him off. No. Nero's wicked, he attacks Christians, he attacks women, he's immoral even by Roman. Honor him. Now what does this mean for us? This is as tangible and everyday and mundane as the jerk supervisor, the jerk boss, the street sign, the parking sign, the street light. Okay, this, this was hilarious. On the way to worship, to preach this sermon this morning, I'm with my children in the car. We come to a light, and it's one of those moments downtown where I'm sitting in an intersection, and there's not a car in sight, and I'm at a red light. And you know, you feel like such a sap when you're sitting at a red light, and there's, there's just no one else. There's no one else around. And I mean, as I'm on the way to preach this sermon, I'm feeling like, I hate this light. I've got to go preach the sermon about submitting to the authorities. So I'm going to run it. 
It is as real as blood alcohol levels when you drive. It's, it's taxes. And it is government. And let me say this. Let me be particular. It is the president. Now, I know what someone may be thinking. They may be thinking, okay, yeah, well, wait a minute. We don't live in a monarchy. They lived in a monarchy. We live in a federal republic. Okay, thank you for pointing that out to all of us so that we could learn about our government. Thank you. But I think we would all have to agree that our president holds a unique position of power and authority both in our country and around the world. That's just, of course, that's true. While I have been a minister, uh, there have been three presidents. When I was ordained, it was Bill Clinton, and then after that, George W. Bush, and now Barack Obama. And I'm telling you that with each of these three men, who are very different, I have felt on eggshells any time I've ever prayed for them publicly by name. I felt on eggshells to pray for any of them publicly by name when the New Testament explicitly commands that we do that. Why have I felt on eggshells? It's because it's so easy uh, to pigeonhole people. You're praying for Clinton, you're a liberal. You're praying for Bush, you're one of these... Okay, so you think Christianity is all like white Republicans that watch Fox News. You're praying for Barack Obama. You're a socialist. Could we stop doing this? To pray for our leaders and to subject ourselves to them and even, if we're going to be robust in our application, to honor them. Can we acknowledge that that is what God's Word commands? And you may be, again, I feel it in myself. But if I honor that person and they've got such and such a policy or such and such a belief or they're working toward this thing and it's at odds with God's Word, if I honor that person and, and I'm subject to that person, am I condoning it? Do you think Peter condoned the murder of Nero's wife? Do you think Peter condoned the martyrdoms? By the way, that would include his own. No. But he's saying this is the reality, is that God is God and we are not. And He decrees whatsoever comes to pass. He works all things according to the counsel of His own will. If someone is in a position of authority locally, regionally, nationally, globally, God's hand was in it. And we might like it, or it might absolutely rub us the wrong way. But we will find out what we really think about the sovereignty of God and the authority of God and the wisdom of God by our response. But it is comprehensive. But it's also persuasive. Look at the similarity of two things that, that Peter says. Start in verse 12 again. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds, all right? They might see the doing of good and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, that little, that little phrase, doing good, doing good deeds, it's going to come up again in verse 14. And there's a contrast. 
What's the contrast? It talks about governors, regional leaders, who are sent by whom? By Him. They're sent by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. All right, then what's the next verse? Verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, so, so what does that mean? What do we mean that this kind of subjection is persuasive? It means this. For, for the apostle Peter, and I would say for all the apostles, evangelism was not so much something that the church implemented. Evangelism was something that the church was. And one way the church was and is to be evangelism and even apologetics, apologetics is the, the defense of the faith, is by being so distinct. And again, here's how mundane and everyday and real world this is. <clears throat> it is one thing to say, I'm going to be a witness at my workplace because I'm not going to cuss. Other people from other viewpoints don't cuss. I mean, it might be from different religious convictions. It might be their upbringing. It might be that they're calm. And we hate them. I'm just kidding. <clears throat> just, just kidding. But, you know, there, there are other people who don't cut. Or, I, I'm, not going to, uh, I'm not going to drink. There are other people who don't drink. But you want to be distinctive? Subject yourself, not with a bit lower lip, but subject yourself and speak respectfully of and do good work for a boss who's cruel or unfair or selfish. And trust me, it will be distinct. And according to Peter, it won't just be distinct... But it may be that even if somebody's saying, hey, you might want to like this guy, you might want to be respectful, you might want to say, sir, I, I guess I should be gender inclusive in the you know, jerk supervisor. It could be a woman too. But you, know, you, you, might want to be, uh, you might want to be that way. I'm not going to be that way, but they still at the end of the day have to ask themselves, but why are you that way? Because this cannot be natural. And Peter says it is evangelism. It is persuasive. But it's a tall order. I've worked for some people I did not like. Um, I remember being a busboy two summers under a little dictator. Wasn't fun. We could all cite our examples, past or present. How, how, do, how do you do this? And th this is the third thing. The subjection that Peter describes is derivative. Meaning, it doesn't start with our own strength or our own discipline our, or our own commitment level. It comes from outside somewhere, both in its origin and even the motivation to do it. What's the motivation? It's the little phrase that's so small that we blew past it and didn't think about it. Be subject... For the Lord's sake. What does that mean? 
Fear God. What does that mean? Think about this. Look in verse 16. Live as people who are free. Free from what? Free from the curse of God's law? Free from the justice and the wrath of God, again, as our brother explained? Free. And free to live. Free with abundant life to actually live life as the man or woman that God made me to be. How are we free if we're just as bad as anybody else? And you could answer that question with this statement. Jesus did not like to call Himself Son of God. He liked to call Himself Son of Man. And to us, that sounds very human and level playing field. Son of Man is a term from the prophecy Daniel. The Son of Man was someone standing before God in all His glory. The Ancient of Days. And there's a figure there, the Son of Man, to whom is given all authority and power and dominion. That's the Son of Man. And that's the way Jesus liked to refer to Himself. And you know what He said? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And what is He saying? The Son of Man, the one who can stand before the Ancient of Days in His own merit, came to be under fallen people and their fallen institutions. And did you notice that after the emperor, what does Peter say? Governors. Do you remember that Jesus interacted with a governor? He's important enough that his name is in both the apostles and the Nicene creeds. And there's this interesting exchange between Pontius Pilate and Jesus, where Pontius Pilate says, Do you not recognize that I have the authority to release you or to crucify you? And what did Jesus say? you would have no authority if it, if it had not been granted you from above. And what is he saying? You have authority that is secondhand. It was imparted to you by God. I have authority because my Father is God and I am God. Any authority you have is derivative. And yet, here's the, here's the one who created Pilate, but he places himself up under Pilate. He doesn't call down fire or annihilate Pilate. He places himself under Pilate to the point of death. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here's the amazing thing, and this comes up in sermons all the time, is that in the kingdom of God, it's like everything works in reverse. He places Himself in subjection, and guess what? We become free. He, t- he, he places Himself in subjection to the wrath and the curse of God, and what? We become subject to the blessing and the favor and the smile of God. He is led in chains and bondage so that we can be set free from this slavery to sin in ourselves. But His subjection is His people's freedom on every count. And then here's the incredible thing. You know, we could say, yeah, but that's Jesus. That's humiliated Jesus. That's Jesus, you know, before the resurrection. But now He doesn't look like that anymore. He's glorious and He's powerful. And that's true. But it says 
One of the greatest studies in the Bible on the resurrection is 1 Corinthians 15. We read it usually in part or in whole on Easter time. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28, says that at the very end, at the very end, God puts all things in subjection. It's the same Greek word to Jesus. And you know what Jesus does? 1 Corinthians 15, 28. He, in everything He has, subjects, subjects Himself to the Father. But Jesus, you're just as much God as the Father. You're equal in power and glory to the Father. You don't have to be subject. It is His glory to subject Himself. And that sets the DNA for what it is like to follow Him. As has been said, His glory is that He laid aside His glory. Christ laid aside His crown for my soul. And either this will grab us or it will not. But if we would be different in Greenville, it would mean that we learn what it is not to bend, not to fudge on any distinctives or, or the standards of righteousness. But even as there's something or some one over us and it, and it gets our hackles up, is to submit, not because that boss is so great, not to pretend that, oh, he's so gracious and wonderful. No, no, he's not. But to submit to the one who's behind him. To, I'll pray for you and I'll honor you and I will serve you with my best work for the Lord's sake. Because I can definitely submit to him. And I want to leave you with this. If you're coming away from this still thinking, I, I just think you're a liberal. I really do. I think at the end of the day, this is like, it's a liberal thing. I, I just, I, I don't know. You may think that. If I am suspect to you, I who dress in L.O. Ben clothes, if I'm subject, you know, if I'm, if I'm suspicious to you, let me read somebody who should not be. I'm going to end with this. The name Cal Thomas. When you see Cal Thomas's name, it doesn't just say syndicated columnist Cal Thomas. It says conservative syndicated columnist Cal Thomas. He was the vice president of the Moral Majority for half of the 80s. He is a regular appear, appears regularly on Fox News. Okay, he has conservative street cred, right? And here's what he wrote in a column: <clears throat> trying to. Let me back up. Christians have a responsibility to slow the spoilage of the kingdom of this world, to be, to be salt, in the words of Jesus, but they cannot do this through political power alone. It is too late for that, and boy, did he learn that in the 80s. Trying to force their ideas on a reluctant public from the top down will only earn Christians further revulsion and rejection, and for all the wrong reasons. Moral power, not political power, is the superior force. If Christians will begin living what they claim to believe, loving their enemies, praying for those who persecute you, becoming a friend to sinners, even hated liberals, his words, a new kind of power would be unleashed on this land. It would be a power that no one could stop. It might produce something called revival, 
which would create the social conditions Christians say they want, but will never be able to achieve by their present means. Let's pray together. Father, take now your word and do with it what you will. If if there is anyone here who has never done the first subjecting, the first submission that he or she needs, and that is to submit to you, to believe on the Lord Jesus for forgiveness and cleansing, saving and changing, Enable that man or woman to do so right now and to find that you are utterly and completely king and you are good and faithful. You are no dictator. You are the high king of heaven, slow to anger, abundant in love. If there's anyone here who knows you, but is suffering, suffering being under someone or something, and it is very difficult, and it's very unjust, and it's very trying. Hold up your servant. That that man, that woman, that child might be lovely and different, a little priest, a part of your kingdom, a holy person right here in Greenville. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.